It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, uh, you know, you can always go to our website at Element FM, uh, choose 106.5 or 95.7, and you can listen live online as well. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show with us, we have Garnet Anjikaneb. He is based out of Sioux Lookout, uh, but it's a pleasure to have him on here. We're, we're talking about uh, recent uh, statements that have been made uh, by uh, Senator Lynn Bayak. Uh, Garnet, uh, actually, you actually met with, with uh, Senator Lynn sure. Bayak. You had, a, I guess, a bit of a conversation with her, um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But tomorrow, the Senate resumes uh, September 23rd, and, uh, and, and it's one of the things it's going to be dealing with is the Lynn Bayak uh, uh, situation. And um, and what we're talking about is her her comments. Uh, I guess of late uh, is that she uh, sent an open letter uh, on September first to the Senate website, and she wrote that First Nation people should give up their indigenous rights and integrate into Canadian society by trading status cards for Canadian citizenship. And that's despite, of course, the fact that Indigenous people born in Canada are already Canadian citizens. Uh, so, Garnet, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So, uh, you you met with with Senator Lynn Bayak. You had a conversation with her, I guess, after her initial comments about residential schools uh, some time ago. And uh, and and I understand that you came away from that meeting feeling fairly optimistic that you had made some progress with her her thinking around these things. Uh, well, actually. Uh... Uh, this goes back to about three years ago now. Okay. Uh, she she first made those remarks in the Senate uh, regarding residential school survivors um, mm. that there was some some good uh, in uh, in residential schools, mm. uh, and uh, that those remarks were made uh, in March two thousand seventeen, mm. and. Uh, uh, we responded. Uh, when I say we, uh, there was a group of us uh, survivors here in Sioux Lookout that uh, took exception and decided that we needed to uh, uh, correct or uh, uh, give our version of uh, 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 give our perspective from the residential school survivors' uh, perspective, mm. and so. And so that was in March, and by July of 2017, we had a face-to-face -face, uh, meeting with her. Um, and uh, to tell you the honest truth, that, that meeting, yes, it did happen. Uh, but uh, when I think back about it now, it was really kind of useless um, when I think about uh, what she said uh, continue to, to do and say after that meeting. Um, you know, what you just read about the uh, trading in the status cards for Canadian citizens, citizenship, that came out after our meeting with her. Mm. Um, our meeting with her, uh, yes, it did happen. We must have talked about two hours. 
And there were a number of survivors there um, that uh, told their stories of their experiences in, in, in residential schools. And so, you know, when uh, survivors talk about their negative experiences of residential schools, it's not a great experience to, to relive uh, those experiences and, and to be able to tell them uh, to someone like Lynn Bayak, who really, uh, who didn't re um, who I, I, who didn't really hear anything what the survivors said. And she was in the room listening, but I don't know if she's heard anything because she went on to spew out more rhetoric uh, after that uh, meeting. Um, and so, and so um, to say that things were good, I'm, I, I, uh, they were not good. Um, mm. You know, and and the, the truth of it is that. Uh, I did not expect uh, her to to change her views or or anything like that, but I did expect her to be a somewhat empathetic and a bit more understanding of the issues, which she really uh, wasn't. And 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 and, and uh, I just uh, uh, she went on. Uh, uh, to say other things that uh, that that just were not based on fact, uh, and then and then also that she continued to uh, uh, not listen to the directions of her colleagues uh, in the Senate, the Ethics uh, Office, for example, that uh, asked her to take down some uh, racist material off her government website. She refused to do that, and. Uh, and so, and so her actions uh, and her words continue to to offend many people, not just survivors anymore, but you know, mm. the, the lot of uh, people in Canada that uh, that uh, continue to, to disagree with our, her actions and the words that she spewed out at the time, and continues mm. to have those actions continue to reverberate at, at the community level. Mm. So. There, that that was our initial contact with her. Okay, so you said that happened about three years ago, and you say in retrospect that it it, it wasn't fruitful. Um, however, can I take you back to that for a second? Because sometimes you can get a sense from people when you meet them, um, from their from their demeanor, from the way they they engage in a meeting, and 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 uh, a sort of. Uh, you know, eye to eye contact, et cetera. What was your sense of things at the time of of what what she was receiving, or how she was interpreting what was going on? When I go back to that day, when I go back to that uh, day of that meeting, and and uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I when I look back at it now, I I, I just know that. Uh, she, I think she was there just as a matter of convenience. Uh, she, had been, mm. she had been invited to the meeting. She, she uh, uh, was present uh, just, just to say after the fact that, uh, that she did meet with the Solicote uh, 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 mm. Reconciliation Committee, um, uh, which she did. And she wanted to use that to her advantage to say that, hey, things are okay. I met with this group. 
when in fact, when I look back at it now, she really uh, didn't, uh, for someone who would have learned something uh, in, in that gut-wrenching meeting, mm. um, she should have known differently. Uh, for example, there, there were survivors there that uh, that talked about their experiences of abuse, whether it was sexual, physical, and otherwise. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it's not easy to, to tell those stories in the mm. hopes that, uh, uh, you know, uh, people can be a bit more understanding of what really happened. Um, and these are stories that are lived experiences. They're, they're, they're directly, uh, they come directly from uh, survivors. Uh, and for her to turn things around um, uh, and, 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 and continue to speak negatively about, uh, about uh, Aboriginal issues, you know, to me is a sign that um, uh, she didn't get the message. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, on a personal level, uh, I was in that meeting and I shared with her uh, stories of abuse that I had encountered, that I had endured in residential school when I was a young boy. And uh, even though she didn't say it in the circle, she, uh, she came up and whispered in my ear afterwards, same thing happened to my husband, she said. And it was the way she said it, it was like, get over it. Well, I'm sorry, but nobody gets over those kinds of traumatic experiences just like that. And it was, uh, uh, and to me, that was a further uh, insult. It was a more, it was a, it was more injury to, uh, to a wound that uh, has never really uh, healed. And uh, for someone to say it in that such a way, uh, same thing happened to my husband, get over it. It, it just tells me that uh, uh, her level of understanding of the residential school uh, and the effects of residential school, her level of understanding of that is really shallow. And that's how I feel today. Mm. Now, the idea of, of giving up the, the status card when, of course, Indigenous people are, if born in Canada, are, are Canadian citizens. You don't have to give that up. Well, you know, um, when I look at uh, what has been said and what's been uh, done by uh, the senator, um, you know, uh, she began to, I think, lose control of her, of her own message out there uh, because... Uh, at that point, uh, she started to spew out uh, words like uh, free speech. This is free speech. And then at one time, she even used the word fake news. And uh, and so that just goes to show me and others that uh, uh, what is it that she's trying to do here? And um, and so when I, uh, when I heard uh, her say that you know, maybe it's time for uh, Indigenous peoples, First Nations people to uh, trade in their status cards. That rang really hollow because A, uh, uh, we are Canadian citizens now. And, uh, and, and, and so what she said at that time is absolutely baseless. 
And uh, and so if you're going to use words like um, uh, uh, go on the uh, fundamental principles of democracy and that, uh, that being uh, using free speech, uh, uh, let's pre yeah let's honor free speech but let's also uh talk about free speech by use by telling the truth and basing our arguments on fact not misinformation as 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 what happened in this particular case and uh and so um uh, the uh the 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 residential school uh arguments that she had originally brought forward were taking different twists and, and it started to show her lack of empathy and her lack of understanding of uh, indigenous issues uh, today. And, uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, um, you know, the, she, she was subject to uh, scrutiny by the uh, ethics uh, a committee of the Senate. Uh, they probe, probed uh, 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 her actions, and one of the recommendations that uh, came out of that uh, uh, was that she take some sensitivity training on mm. Indigenous issues, which she did, by the way. And that whole that that whole fiasco took a, took different turns, and so. It's like as if she has been playing games all along um, at the at the on the backs of survivors, and that's the way I'm feeling now. Mm, right. I just want to let let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in 106.5 or 95.7 and E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Garnet Anjikaneb and he is uh, he's uh, based out of uh, a Sioux Lookout and uh, he, he, as I say, he's from Northwestern Ontario and he received the Order of Canada for his work in social justice advocacy and improving race relations and he's both disappointed and disgusted by recent comments made by Senator Lynn Bayak, and, uh, and we've heard a little bit about his story. Now, Garnet did meet with, uh, with Senator Lynn Bayak a few years ago, as he pointed out earlier. And, um, you know, Garnet, the other thing that, uh, that the senator has, has pointed out in some of the, the things that she's talked about in, returns, in terms of indigenous, whether it's giving up the status card or or, or, or anything of, of this nature with, with regard to residential schools. She, she says, you know, for instance, well, all the leaders, uh, the indigenous leaders in Ottawa uh, have all sort of been assimilated because they all have expense accounts. They all do, you know, they stay in, in nice hotels and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I, I wonder what, when she says that, does she realize what she's actually saying? Because what choice would they have had except to do business in terms of the way the government does business, and and what what were they supposed to do other than than uh, you know if they're if they're funded by the government, they want to do things a certain way, they have to follow certain protocols, they have to have expense accounts set up a certain way so that they can be tallied, they can be followed, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering what choice they would have had, uh, and and how 
you know, a comment like that has any relevance to, to, uh, to, to following up in terms of the other things that she's saying? I think one of the things that, uh, 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 that I find about her comments is that they're, uh, uh, they're misleading and, uh, uh, and, and extremely shallow. Of course, if we're going to travel, we're going to uh, we're going to be uh, traveling just like uh, yep. other senators and politicians do in this country. Right. You know, um, uh, we buy our airplane tickets, uh, mm -hmm. use our credit cards to go to check into hotels, and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. I don't see any difference there in terms of what the Aboriginal leaders uh, and how they conduct themselves, uh, claiming expenses and. and uh, in, in the same way that senators and politicians do. So I, I think that's a real non-issue to begin with. Um, but, you know, uh, what started out as her comments about the good of residential schools turned out to be other things. And it, and it uh, soon began to take different turns and taking swipes at accountability uh, issues. Mm. It, 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 uh, I mean, she even went as far as to talk about the 1969 white paper and how yep. that should have uh, uh, taken shape. And, and uh, uh, if we had uh, uh, implemented the 1969 white paper, for example, that everything would be okay today. Well, you know, that's her opinion, and, 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 and uh, she's entitled to that opinion. But the but the, uh, the the truth of the matter was that uh, um, you know uh, she began to twist things differently and 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 when that happens when things are based on opinion yes free speech granted uh, but when uh, when uh, that kind of uh, Negative past is uh, brought forward, and this is, and people say this is how it should have been in the first place. You know what happens is that those kinds of comments uh, reverberate negatively to the community level, mm. and uh, it stirs up a certain amount of uh, feelings uh, uh, within uh, communities in Canada. Uh, at the community level, and yes, uh, sometimes we see racism brew its uh, rear its ugly head at the community level because of these kinds of things, and uh, and so you know uh, the senator did claim that she got thousands and thousands of uh, support, and I know that uh, there were other. Uh, points of view uh, that uh, that were sent to her you know um, mm. and she didn't talk about those but she right. she decided to dwell on uh, the amount of support she was generating because of the of the points that she was raising well you know it just stirs up the old uh, uh, the old uh, racist uh, uh, um, uh, at the community level, and um, and and so some of her actions and her, her words reverberate into the community, 
And uh, one of the things that I find really uh, offensive is that the system in Canada, uh, the, the, the political system, and in this case, the Senate is one of the most powerful chambers of decision-making in this country. And that that institution uh, is allowed, has allowed one of its members to spew out these kinds of things. And, and I get really upset about that because today we are dealing with issues of uh, racism, be it systemic uh, racism or, or work racism. Uh, I, I need not talk about uh, the, the impacts uh, that, that are happening south of the border. For example, the name George Floyd, mm. you know, and, and, and in our own ways, uh, uh, the Senate uh, needs to really crack down and look at uh, what it is that the Senate has done in this case. And maybe it's not so much about Lynn Bayak when I talk about this, but w what I'm saying is now it's time to look at uh, change. And what is it that this chamber, the Senate chamber, is doing, allowing uh, someone, one of its members, to to spew out such uh, racist uh, uh, messaging to mm. to the community? And so that that needs a bigger discussion. So that right. that's that's how I'm feeling about that. Well, I appreciate all of those comments. I was going to ask you about the Senate, uh, and you, you, you commented on that. You also brought up the uh, 69 white paper and what her comments were there, uh, and I appreciate that because I was going to ask you. Um, in terms of that, yeah, she did say that, that Trudeau and Christian got it right. Um, and, and, you know, when I think about that, and, and going back to the other comments, in fact, any of the comments, I guess, that she makes, um, from whose perspective? You know, got it right from whose perspective? And, uh, you know, that, that when you think of it like that, uh, it starts to, to sort of, you know, bring a, a clearer image to, to what she's saying. Yeah, sure, if, if you want to look at it all from the, the perspective of, uh, I guess, for the benefit of Canada uh, and the Canadian government, uh, that seems to make sense. But on the whole, is it fair overall to just look at, at that in, in quite a simplistic way? And, and, and some of the other comments she was making as well. Um, I appreciate also what you said about looking at the larger picture, because I was going to say, what, what, what do you hope for the future and, and, you know, and maybe come out of this, especially with the Senate um, uh, resuming and then dealing with this? You, you've sort of touched on that a little bit too, uh, Garnet, and, and I'm just wondering if you have any, because we're going to finish up in a, in a couple of minutes, um, any, any other comments or any other thoughts about what you hope to see are you are are you, you know you've addressed the idea that that how can, how can the senate allow this i guess basically for her to make these statements and and still sit there are you surprised that she is still sitting there well, you know um when you when you look at uh, uh the mandatory uh retirement age for uh, a senator uh uh, you're looking at uh, age 75, um, uh, and uh, um, you know it's really. I think it's really time that we look at uh, at the Senate um, in terms of vetting. Uh, mm -hmm. How do we vet senators to 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 uh, uh, 
to be able to sit in uh, in in that chamber, a, a prestigious uh, uh, position. Um, you know, certainly um, uh, that comes to to mind. Um, I also think uh, I think uh, uh, you know. Let's just, for example, say, what if I would have uh, uh, turned this into a Canadian human rights case and filed a complaint? Mm. Uh, um, Right now, there is no way uh, that a senator can be removed uh, from the chamber. Uh, and, And this comes to a larger discussion. So this uh, institution allows this to happen. Meanwhile, we know of uh, journalists, we know of educators and others who have said some uh, pretty negative things who are not, do do not hold their positions anymore. They're, they're, They're reprimanded, they're fired, they're let go, whatever. But here we are in one of these institutions uh, of higher power, and uh, and and the senator still sits there, um, and uh, and so we really need to uh, look at this institution and begin to talk about reforms. Well, we need to talk about uh, uh, systemic racism coming out of the, one of the most powerful chambers of the country. So we're in it for a large, a lot, a bigger discussion mm. and, uh, and 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 by the way uh, one of the other positive things that Senator Bayak has done is that um, you know in terms of the residential school issue uh, and because of the things that she has said and done um, it just uh, challenges us Canadians to do more to do more about uh, learning from one other, another, our shared history uh, that uh, we haven't done enough and we, we need to, to, uh, uh, to talk about our shared history in a more meaningful way. Um, that way, you know, uh, there's a whole discussion here. You know, I, I can get into uh, 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 rewriting history uh, uh, to to be more inclusive. That way, we wouldn't see statues coming down, for example, uh, as in the mm. case of the John A. Macdonald statue coming down in Montreal. Issues mm. like that. So, really, we're in it for a, a, a bigger discussion about educating each other about our shared history. And so, in 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 that sense, if there's anything positive about it. Uh, I think this whole issue is going to wake up the nation and say, hey, we can do better. Mm. Nicely said, Garnet. I appreciate your, your comments, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. I want to um, say... Uh, miigwech, miigwech. Yeah, for joining us, and, and thanks again for, for taking the time to do so. That's Garnet Anjikaneb, and he is based at a Sioux Lookout. He's also 
has received the Order of Canada for his work in social justice advocacy and improving race relations. And we've been talking to him about uh, Senator Lynn Bayak and the comments that she has made in regards to both residential schools as well as uh, Indigenous people giving up their status cards and, uh, and, and becoming Canadian citizens, which uh, if they're born in Canada, they already are. And of course, the uh, Senate resumes on September 23rd, and they're going to be dealing with uh, the Lynn Bayak uh, comments. It's one of the things that they'll start to look at when they resume. It's uh, been a pleasure to have you listening to us, and uh, we appreciate you doing so each and every day. But please don't go away. Coming up next, Nations at War, right after this break. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And uh, a couple of the guys that are with us right now here on the show might take advantage of that because they're both, as I understand, on the west coast of Canada. We have with us uh, producer, writer, director Jason Friesen of Nations at War, and that is going to be premiering, or did premiere last week on uh, APTN uh, Season 2. Also with us, we have uh, Tim Johnson, and uh, Tim is uh, the creator and writer uh, and uh, of this this Nations at War uh, series that, as we mentioned, on APTN. So welcome, gentlemen. Nice to have you with us. Thank you That's for having me. great to be here. Season two. Yes. Now, uh, of course, I had a chance to watch some of these, these programs. Um, if you don't mind, before we get into season two, maybe you can take us back and talk to us a little bit about how this all got started and, and season one, what leads up, what, what did you get into in season one? How, did it, how does it lead up to season two? Because what's really cool that I find about the series is that you guys delve into some stuff that, you know, it fills in a lot of the gaps around some of, some of Canada's, uh, or North America, I should say, North America's history. Because we, we are going back uh, in time to, to uh, uh, you know, pre-Canada, pre-United States. It's when North America was North America and Turtle Island for many people. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll just start out how, like, uh, as you'd mentioned, how this all began, this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just coming off um, season two of uh, my comedy series, Health Nuts, that I did on APTN. Okay. Yep. And uh, one of the one of the actors on that show, um, what, he he was he's friends with Tim, and um, he had he 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 told me about this friend of his that he had, which was Tim, and that he had this uh, this concept for this series called Nations of War. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, um, I was pitched the series, and then. From there, I really liked it. I thought it was a really interesting idea, you know, as far as history goes. And um, so from there, I, I started Skyping back in mm. the old days when we used to Skype. Yeah, because um, I was in Toronto at the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Tim, and I, Tim and I started Skyping in the next, and then for the next probably year and a half, I would say, um, we never actually met each other. No. And we started and then I and then I pitched it to APTN and they really liked it a lot. 
So then we started to develop it. So Tim and I developed the, the series um, for the next, over about, it was, it was a, just over a year. Uh, I'd say, yeah, all, from, yeah, from it was the, all done on the line though. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, and then from there, I also brought on um, a gentleman by the name of Brian Moylan, who's retired now, but he's an Emmy Award nominated um, visual effects um, mm. artist, producer. And so I had him, I worked with him and we put together a demo, um, which really kind of adapted and became the look of what we have now for Nations at War. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that's in a nutshell, that's, that's really how it all, how it all came together. And then Tim eventually came out here and, and, um, and, and worked on the show. So, so you guys were communicating COVID style for, for quite a while there before COVID yeah, was even yeah. an issue. We're the original satellite production. I like to say yeah, that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Tim, tell us, uh, take us back to, to, you know, creating this, this then how and why did you, uh, uh, come up with the idea. I mean, you know, there's been lots of programs on history and certainly on uh, indigenous history, uh, North America, how it was formed, uh, the the indigenous uh, nations that uh, lived here prior to contact. Uh, what did you What did you What did you want to bring forward or do differently? So I actually, there's actually fewer than you'd suspect, and the show literally came out of the oldest desire I think any kind of content creator can have, which is where is there uh, a gap? Mm. Or is there a story that's not been told mm. uh, as, as fully as it could be? So mm-hmm. I'm a huge history nerd. I actually have like a history degree. I've been a history fan my entire life. I grew up where I am from uh, rural Nova Scotia originally. And where I'm from, you can still see all the Acadian dikes, mm. and, uh, that, which I basically still hold back the ocean. So mm. And, and when you live in Halifax, there's the giant fort that just dominates the, the city's heights. So you're kind of inundated with history. And in mm. Nova Scotia, it's a really complicated history of all of uh, what the indigenous people call Wabanaki. It's, it's a pretty mm. intense, uh, visceral, violent past that kind of sums up a lot of the divisions in early Canada's history which, between the French, the indigenous and the British slash you know, American settlers. Mm. And I was looking to watch something about that because I was in the middle of uh, designing a music video and I mm. was gluing little props together and I had to wait for them to dry in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m. And I went looking for a show to kind of fill my itch. I mm. really am a big fan of British kind of popular history style shows. Mm. And uh, I went looking for something like that, which would talk about indigenous people. I don't know why it was what was in my mind at the time. And I went looking for it and I didn't find it. Uh, mm-hmm. There are in, indigenous focused history shows out there. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of the American ones uh, like to do like all the greatest hits, which is, you know, mm-hmm. talk about sitting bowl, talk about right. uh, the Cherokee, talk about this, you know, these, these really famous um, right. figures in history who happen to be indigenous. But what I didn't mm-hmm. really get was a, a broader look at the cultural aspects of these societies and especially kind of the conflicts they had before Europeans mm-hmm. showed up or in the early stages when Europeans showed up. And when you start, especially looking where we live in the West Coast, uh, it's a fascinating, incredible, and uh, sometimes very violent golden age that kind of existed before mm. Europeans arrived in the, in the 1700s. And there's nothing out there about it. There was nothing about the Haida and, and how powerful they were and what an influential kind of naval force they were and basically how they were, they were doing what the Vikings are so lauded for doing much mm. longer and much more successfully mm. 
And uh, I just thought, wow, what a what a crazy story left untold. And I, I had already kind of had it in the back of my mind to do a individual like feature length documentary about the conflict over Eastern Canada. And um, because I just think that's another story that just was never told. It was almost like mm. a Vietnam story where you have, mm. you know, this indigenous guerrilla force fighting this massive imperial power of the day. Mm. And when I started looking through other Canadian history and, and American history, I started finding little examples of all these stuff that had just been completely ignored or left by the wayside, or just, it wasn't, there wasn't enough white people involved. I'm going to be completely honest to merit being covered. And that mm. to me was like a big no, no, this is all fascinating stories. It's all very, very important. It's, it becomes a lot more clear how important a lot of these stories are. The more you look at it in a bigger context and the more Jason and I got into the show. So it was just that it was just this desire to like, see the show that didn't exist and I, I wanted to see it and then I knew that there was more stories out there and that's mm. kind of I think what hooked Jason is I just we had a phone call I think it was in a parking lot I was in a parking lot at North Shore Studios and I was just like well, oh we could do this episode we could do this oh there's these guys and these guys you could just hear Jason was like when you when you, when you pitch something to somebody and you get that immediate enthusiastic right. response and you get that yeah. kind of like yeah okay, what else you got what else you got um <laughs> and that's what we had and then I think we both saw the potential of of uh you know, a show that didn't exist that we could, we could find a place in the, the, the crowded, very crowded media market of today that mm. would stand out, be distinct, cover something that uh, no one really talks about to as in as clear detail as we do. Mm. And at the same time, you know, tell some really amazing stories that no one had ever really heard on a wider level beyond maybe BC or beyond Nova Scotia or, or Ontario, wherever. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the stories, uh, I mean, it, it was very interesting as I, I got to watch a couple of the episodes. Uh, I certainly learned a few things about even the, the nations, the territories, um, and, and some of the, 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 the way they interacted or either well or not so well with each other, which was interesting. But I guess, uh, you know, in going back and, and, and seeing the history, of course, uh, there was... There were conflicts uh, prior to European contact. There were there were territories uh, that were established. Um, however, I guess after contact, it's really interesting to see how uh, the nations start getting moved aside as as the European uh, influence becomes more and more crowded in North America and starts pushing nations. To into conflict, you might say, because they're they're being pushed out of their traditional territories to find new new places to live. I think, yeah, I think what we were Jason and I found really interesting, and Jason is uh, uh is Métis, and I mean he was a big source for a lot of the Métis history we talked about because he's already done a documentary about mm-hmm. uh, those people. Um, what we found was it's a really complicated situation of sometimes people make decisions, uh, you know, indigenous leaders make decisions that seems good in the short term, because you're, you know, you're, if your house is on fire and someone offers you water, are you going to take the water? But mm. you don't know where that water is coming from. Are they taking it from somebody else? So there was already a situation because of disease and because of uh, uh, just already existing conflicts, which had created uncertainty and into that void is what Europeans stepped into. But I think what Jason and I discovered a bunch of times when we went into these stories was it was never that simple. It was never mm. that it was indigenous people on this side and it was Europeans on this side and they had clear defined goals. You had a patchwork of indigenous leaders in communities acting for their national interest, for their local interest, for their, you know, their personal interest, 
and you had Europeans and American settlers who operated similar thing. French, you know, French Canadians may have supported their indigenous allies, but a lot of their French colonial reinforcements during the wars against Britain didn't really respect indigenous people. That's actually uh, like father, one mm-hmm. of our one of our more recent episodes and uh, the third episode mm-hmm. of the series is all about that, about how right. even on the same side, you had two different opinions. Right. And and that that personality conflict is really what underpins a really seminal moment. So, you know, I think I think it's unfair to say that the indigenous people were pushed aside from history or from being are being marginalized in their role in history, because even individual warriors can make a world of difference. And they do. And and you see that even no matter how small a number of indigenous people were involved in, say, like a conflict or an event, they are just as impactful and just as uh, monumental players as the European generals or the you know American mm. presidents or whatever. All right. Uh, just before we get into that, I'm glad you brought that up and, and the different ways that uh, that warfare uh, changed or was different from uh, fighting in Europe. And some of these uh, warriors that came over and generals that, thinking they were going to battle in certain ways to what they were used to. And then, of course, finding a different kind of terrain altogether with, with a different kind of uh, of of, uh, of climate and uh, and and just the way of, of uh, the indigenous people. Uh, having advantage because of the way they were they were uh, um, uh, taking uh, going into battles and things. But right now, I just want to let everyone know you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in 106.5 E-L-M-N-T-F-M or 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. With us here on Moment of Truth right now, we have with us producer, writer, director Jason Friesen, and also Tim Johnson. He's the creator and writer. They're both associated with Nations at War, and season two uh, premiered uh, on September 19th on APTN, so you can catch them uh, uh, at 7 p.m. Guys, uh, weekly sh- weekly at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays? Uh, yes, they, they will be running weekly, and then they'll be recycling them after that. Mm. episodes and season one still playing obviously as well mm-hmm. and um uh but yeah I, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things that that uh going back a bit um two really important things with regards to this series that that are that that caught my eye and have kind of really panned out the way i thought they would like on, on an educational Point. like a lot of people that watch these shows or or believe it or not I mean even even when I'm hearing you talk David as well like people are just genuinely surprised they're the comment we get a lot or I didn't know that happened in Canada and another big thing too is is like a lot of these stories and history you got to remember a lot of them were written um, in journals by generals from their perspective yep. so one of the unique things that we do with this series is we present we present these stories from the historical uh, perspective that it's been written but we also have um, you know indigenous experts scholars elders and they really give us a kind of a slice of life 
behind the scenes for that particular nation, what was going on mm-hmm. and the oral history of what was being talked about mm-hmm. and just different perspectives of what they thought of these, you know, different countries like France and Britain. And, and so it's really interesting when you hear, you know, elders speak about things like with the Métis in particular, like they, you know, they, they, a lot of the war that warring that they did, it, it was very much approached as a, you know, from a Buffalo hunting standpoint, like mm. when the Canadians came, you know, to, to, to basically extract the Métis, they, they looked at it as a Buffalo hunt and, and, and they very much executed their, their, their military, we'll call it as such. And um, so it, it's, I find it really interesting how, once again, how a lot of times people are, are, are curious and they'll go online and they'll Google. So the show is very educational and powerful that way where it gets people talking and asking questions and, and, it, and it really opens up conversation just about not only Indigenous uh, history and, and nations, but also a lot of the people that came over from, from Europe um, and why they came over here. And, and I'd like Tim to just touch on that for you guys too, because it's really interesting you know, when Europeans came over to North America, it was very much kind of like, you know, in a modern day kind of condo pre-sale, you know, where, where people from other countries buy condos and then they show up to live in them right. and they're sometimes right. not what they were told they were. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's really interesting. And if Tim, if you could touch on that, just when when <laughs> Irish and that came over, like what 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 they saw when they came and what what were the big surprises? We, we, we try really hard with Nations at War to not treat anyone like a monolithic group of people. Um, so even saying the French or the British is a really inaccurate term because when you say British, it's actually four or five constituent cultures who are radically right. different and had spent centuries fighting each other. Sure. Um, so when you know English generals came over or wealthy landlords came over, they, like Jason said, they bought the condo, they got the deed from the crown, they set up shop, built a nice house. They had that, uh, you know, North American dream. When you had Scottish foot soldiers and Irish immigrants and uh, Northern English miners, these are all people who were poor. They are desperate a lot of the time, have no land, live in a system that was punishingly unbalanced and unfair and uh, kind of tilted towards the elites. So we actually have like a really interesting moment in one of the episodes where you see uh, indigenous warriors basically fighting for their home as the wave of British forts and settlers is slowly encroaching into their land. And uh, they're, they're fighting one of this pitch battle called Bushy Run um, during the Pontiac uh, uprising. They're fighting uh, at the front lines against Scottish Highlanders who are people who literally were just crushed by the British army a couple of years before this battle happens. And they are chosen because they are a really hard survivors. They are, known to be warriors and excellent at hand-to-hand combat, and they have nothing to lose. So we, we, we went and looked at both sides of the conflict anytime we talked about the conflict, and we didn't just look at their weapons. We didn't just look at their uh, you know, cultural traits. We looked at what brought them to the fight in the first place, uh, what could have been avoided, and what was unavoidable. And that's, you know, you have to do it to both sides of a conflict to really tell a true story and sure. to uh, to really portray the human tragedy of every conflict that happens. And I think we, we tried really hard with this show. And Jason and I, you know, we're, we're very adamant that 
unless someone like, you know, Edward Cornwallis or Jeffrey Amherst was like truly this evil, evil person, this, these, these maniacal butchers, you know, what, how do you tell the story of a desperate immigrant fighting a desperate indigenous person? Mm. And you have to tell it in that story of this is a, the war itself was a failure to communicate, a failure to work together, a failure to, uh, to connect that bridge that between the oceans. And I think that's what we tried to tell. We try to tell a human story every time because these are humans that fought and died on both sides. Mm. Yeah, interesting. You, you you mentioned a couple of things there. I want to go back to uh, how you you say you you've uh, you go to uh, when you're dealing with the indigenous stories. You try to find those indigenous people that can fill in those gaps that are that were not told because of the uh, how a lot of the documentation was done from uh, f- from the British or the the French or the Americans that that were uh, in those battles. And we didn't get the side necessarily from the indigenous side. So, and you've gone in there and. I, I know that uh, from from just uh, my own uh, my own community of Six Nations, uh, you know, you hear a lot of things in the community about about history that you don't necessarily hear anywhere else. And it's interesting that you know you got to go find that stuff so that you can get. Wow, I had no idea that happened or 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 this happened. As an example, I'll give you an example. Um, my people, uh, although associated with Six Nations, are the Lenape or the Delaware. And uh, they, are, of course, are not uh, originally from uh, the Six Nations community, but they were forced west and forced north, and we ended up on Six Nations. And so there's a real interesting history uh, around that. And I didn't get that, that history until I started listening and learning and, and being around uh, meetings and, and hearing and filling in the gaps about what really happened and, uh, and how that history came about. And so uh, there's that kind of stuff. And I'm sure every community and every nation across the country has those kind of things. So it, it's great that you're, you're going and, and finding out about that, that oral history. You know, the one thing that, that grabbed me uh, in one episode, you talk about the buffalo. And, you know, we, we, of course, know how important the buffalo were to, to the indigenous communities for, for livelihood, uh, for following the buffalo, for, for food, for clothing, for everything. And um, there's one image, and you guys probably know what this is already. It, it's an image of, of a guy standing in front of the, of the remains of the, the bones of the dead buffalo. Yeah. Oh, my God. And you see this mound, and it's a mountain of bones, and I just cannot imagine how many buffalo it took to to do that, and and it really brought home that whole idea about how you know they were slaughtered, uh, and and this guy's standing there looking very proud about the fact, and, and you just go, what were these people thinking, you know? We yeah. saw we saw a couple pictures like that, Jason. How many pictures mm-hmm. did we see of just people standing in front of buffalo bones? Like I can think of at least three because we we comb archives for this show looking mm-hmm. for images and all that. And it, you'd be surprised how common that image is or that motif is or, or people hunting buffalo. And it's like a yeah. weird like pamphlet encouraging yeah. people to come out West. So mm-hmm. it was a really central part of, of taming right. the West for, I think for a lot of American mm-hmm. history was killing the buffalo. Hey, but I mean, it, Jason, you know, Jason, Jason's been really fortunate. We actually got to shoot with a bunch of buffalo this season. Right. Yeah. Film I, shoot, I, film I, shoot. Hey, on, the, on one note, David too, like just on that, on, on your last thought there, I mean, mm. And, and that and that's the thing about the, the the medium we're working with. Like an image like that can have such a powerful effect on you and viewers and that. And mm. and you know, for us, I mean, 
when you look at that and how long ago that was, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it's just a, it's a reminder of history and, and trying to learn from history and not repeat certain things. So when you look at like, I mean, it could even be logging or salmon habitat or anything mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, and you're hoping that people will see something like that and think about it and talk about it. So it doesn't happen with other species mm. really. Right. So, mm. yeah. And the other thing that you guys get into, which is uh, really kind of interesting, is that when you are talking about the conflicts, uh, you explore the weaponry and, and you kind of break that down and show people what the weaponry was by going into, you bring up these diagrams and, and they ex you sort of explode them and you, you kind of uh, bring them together to show the different parts and you explain the differences between whether it's a musket uh, you know, or whether it's a, a British one or a French one, uh, and and some of the other uh, indigenous weaponry that was used, and why they were so effective to be used in warfare. I think you can't talk about war without talking about how people kill each other. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just you need mm -hmm. to understand like what a musket ball does mm -hmm. to somebody mm -hmm. to really like it's it's fine to talk about conflict in an abstract sense, but we right. have an expert. I wanted to, one of Jason's elders, who is like a uh, a veteran. And like a, uh, a a sniper and a firearms expert and a, t and a mm. firearms instructor, and him just describing what a what a seventy five caliber, like a smooth bore musket ball fired at close range will do to the human body is horrifying. And you realize mm. that in one of these battles, the sky is just full of this this that's just full of lead. So I don't think. And in terms of like, I know I know one of the big things when Jason and I were, were first doing the first season, and really I think what hooked Jason definitely was when we were talking about the Haida and all the, the naval technology that they had developed like uh, with their canoes and their, their ship breakers. Because naval combat's not something you think about when you talk about indigenous people. You don't necessarily, like, you know, the common, sure. the common perception is people fighting on land or people fighting right. in the woods. It's not people fighting on the waves. Mm. Yeah. yeah and, and, I, and the other thing too is, is, is like with nations at war, once again with history, a lot of the way history's written and a lot of the way it's been taught in schools unfortunately is a lot of the indigenous heroes from our communities even they're they're second players in their own stories in a lot of cases because once again they're written these these the, this history's written from a, a general's perspective and it might be mm. embellished more mm -hmm. so about them so we're learning i find we're learning a lot more about um indigenous history not only with the experts, indigenous scholars. I mean, we had Eldon Yellowhorn, who's uh, he's an indigenous historian and also an archaeologist. He's Blackfoot. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, mm. Um, and and it's just it, it's incredible to hear, you know, his perspective. I mean, his knowledge that he learned from going to school, but then he he blends it together with his oral history, mm. and it's just it's it's such a fascinating way to to take in history hearing it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, listen, guys, uh, you know, it's been really interesting speaking with you both, and we thank you for the time that you took to to talk to us about Nations at War in Season 2. But it sounds like uh, there's a lot more to share. Is there going to be Season 3 and looking down the road even more? Yes, we we actually found out not too long ago that we are, that we are going ahead with uh, Season 3. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, we're going to be working on that and going into production in the new year. Well, congratulations to, to both of you. Yeah, very excited.
Nice, nice, really nice. Uh, we have been speaking here on Moment of Truth with uh, uh, producer, writer, director Jason Friesen, and also uh, the creator, writer Tim Johnson, and that's a Nation it's Nations at War. Uh, season two is now on APTN. You can catch that uh, weekly, uh, seven p.m. And uh, the season started just last week. So, and also, as you heard uh, the mention, you can also see season one, which is still running as well. All the best to both of you in the future. We look forward to. Uh, season three and maybe beyond because it sounds like there's lots of history yet to be told in this series thank you david appreciate it thanks for talking to us you bet thanks guys take care jason friesen and tim johnson of nations at war right here on moment of truth and element fm thank you for listening we'll catch you next time this has been moment of truth with david moses element 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 fm